Hey everyone, we just wanted to let you know that today's episode carries a trigger warning because we talk quite a lot about domestic violence and stalking. So keep that in mind. Thanks. Hey everybody. This is Talk Like a Lady, a podcast where we find out all about our favorite ladies. I'm Carly Morton. And I'm Jessica Fontana. And tonight, we're making a little bit of podcast history for us. We are having Nicole Beverly on today, and she was actually um, our third episode's badass lady. So we are very excited to have her on. Um, hello, Nicole. Hello. Thank you for having me. No. Yeah, we are so excited, so you're, excited you're with us. We've been talking about it like ever since Angie was on. We were like, man, we need to have Nicole on. She's, oh, yeah. She has a story that everyone should hear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, what are we drinking tonight? Um, so I am drinking purple cowboy red. That sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> tenacious red wine hey <laughs> and we're drinking a box of red wine so <laughs> just gonna class it up over here <laughs> i just tried it it's very good box red wine i know now. it's my favorite Is red it? wine yeah. yeah it's uh sorry it's the nighthawk black boda box and it's a it's a oh yeah okay. bold dark jammy red it says so right here <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and mine's tenacious. So Yours is tenacious. And jammy, you mine's know, jammy. together. <laughs> but I thought, you know, purple was appropriate for yes. You know, it's the color, Perfect. so I rolled with that tonight. Do you know I am because I am not like a wine expert whatsoever, but I genuinely pick out a lot of wines based on the labels, like. For book club, if it kind of has the theme on it somehow, like I'm kind of yeah. So I feel you on they that. Have, one. There I are like some it. amazing wine labels. Like yes, I, trust me, my kids will tell you I spend way too much time <laughs> just looking at wine labels. They're like they're art. They're yes, art. right. Okay. And then amazing. I end up saving them like a dum dum, and then not drinking it, and then it's bad inside the bottle. Probably I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um. Okay. So we made you do some homework, and I want to know who your badass lady is. So my bad la- badass lady is Ariane Slay, and she is um, not only uh, not only was she my prosecutor for many of my uh, cases early on in my domestic violence and stalking um, cases, but she is also now running for prosecutor. Nice. The of Washtenaw County and is the only female running against two male um, competitors for a prosecutor of the county that I live in. So she is 100% a badass. Lady. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, that is. I hope she, I hope she gets it. I do too. When are she, there, uh, when are the elections for that? Um, on August 5th. In, and unfortunately, um, because the office of prosecutor is based um, on your whether or not um, you're Democratic or Republican, and all the candidates running are Democratic. The primary is the final election. Oh, holy crap! Because they're all Democratic candidates, there is not a second. So would it have um, normally been in November? But they're yeah. Oh, so man. whoever wins in August is the winner. Whoa, guys! So that's way less time to campaign and everything. Especially with COVID, yeah. and they limited her ability to get out there. It will, you know, everyone's ability to get right. out there and really campaign. Um, but yeah, I it's been unfortunate in terms of the her ability to really get out there and campaign for the for the job. But she she definitely deserves it. That's I love here. I just I know women are the best. <laughs> Yeah, I like it when uh, we get to hear about badass women all over the place and not just, I mean, not saying that it's bad to hear about Kansas City, but Mm -hmm. it's good for us to get to learn 
what's going on elsewhere. Well, and I hope I like I genuinely hope that she's elected because, boy, do we need more women in power. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, on another note, one of the uh, gentlemen running against her was actually convicted of rape by oh, a jury. Jesus. Are served you- 10 years in prison and was still and is still being allowed to run for prosecutor in Washtenaw County. Are you fucking kidding she, me? Uh, his name is Hugo Mann. Yeah, that's one of her two. Uh, Bro, the other two candidates running against her, and uh, somehow, some way, he there are loopholes allowing uh, him to to run for prosecutor of our of our county. That is so gross. That's it's, that's it's how very is that? Concerning. I just don't understand how that's allowed. Right. That makes me yeah. want to throw up everywhere. We could, really, we, I don't think it's going to happen, but we could have a convicted sex offender who is on the sex offenders list as our prosecutor. Oh, See, doesn't that, isn't that, um, conflict of it, like in, in any sexual violence crime or like, is, wouldn't, yeah, wouldn't that be to me, to me in any crime against any woman, it right. could be of interest. Um, hell is going on really? up there? You guys, that's, that's just exactly. And we're, and we're, you know, quite honestly, supposed to be one of the most progressive counties in our state. Yeah. Very so progressive that you're going to let a rapist run. Yeah. That's so weird. It's, it's very concerning in that. And, and, you know, because his crime was, I think, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago, um, not many people know or are even aware. And so could be voting for him without the knowledge that, he actually has this conviction. Ew. I That's, would put that, sh- I would put that everywhere. Yeah. I don't like I don't that. even, I, I think I would go door to door. They're that. trying. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Insane. Oh gosh. That gives me the yuck. Yeah. I don't like that at all. What, um, what did you decide for your, um, organization? And I won't judge you if it's the enough initiative. <laughs> uh-uh. <laughs> You know, <laughs> thank you for not judging me. <laughs> it very you know, well should be. You know, the organization that I have to say is an amazing organization is the Enough Initiative, um, which is the organization that I finally, um, after doing year, years of work without having a nonprofit, decided it was time yeah. to actually make it a legitimate nonprofit. And of course, Got all of the paperwork approved just in time for COVID. <laughs> right. No, of course. Right. Um, and so, as you know, we've run into some obstacles too um, with that. But, um, you know, fundraising's been a little tougher. And now we're up against the battle of events being canceled and, you know, looking at how are we going to be able to get into schools in the fall? Are we going to yeah. be able to colleges in the fall? Or are we going to have to look at um, doing some virtual events? Yeah. Um, or, you know, in designing some type of virtual platform, if schools aren't back in session where students can still get the information. Um, I'm lucky mm. for some interns through Wayne State University. Oh, nice. So I'm going to have three master's level social work uh, interns working under me. Enough initiative this fall um, from Very September. Cool. So that's going to be huge in terms of hopefully getting some grants. Um, getting some more research and data collected and getting um, some more programs up and running for the organization. So I'm super excited about that. Well, and even just having, you know, three more brains, if you do have to do a virtual platform, you know, just having three other people that can brainstorm with you and figure out how to do that. Absolutely. So that's awesome. Good for you guys. Yeah. And, you know, I can train them to um, run the curriculum too. So, I can't, you know, if I can only, I can obviously only be physically in one place at a time, but if we have, you know, events in different locations, once they're trained and comfortable, they can be running them too. Very cool. Yeah, That's awesome. Got people to do that. Is this, so this would be the first year that that would be available to you since you're now an official nonprofit, right? Yes. Okay. Very cool. 
Absolutely. And, you know, just to back up a little bit in terms of um, what the nonprofit is, we are a domestic violence prevention organization. Um, So our target group is high school and college um, young adults and teaching them the red flags of dating uh, violence, uh, abusive relationships, whether it's emotional or physical, so that they know the signs. Yeah. They can recognize them early on and avoid them because I didn't know the signs. No one had taught those to me. So uh, I got sucked into a relationship um, unknowingly that was an abusive relationship. So that's one of the main uh, target areas. And then also we're finding now one in three high school students has already been involved in an abusive relationship, whether it's emotional or physical. So it's not just teaching them the red flags, but also once they're in the presentation and hearing that, yeah, I am in an abusive relationship. Now, what do I do? So teaching them the steps to help them leave the relationship safely um, is another really important part of what our organization does. And also helping people who may, there are young people who may be sitting in our presentations thinking, I am the abuser or I am abusive. What do I do? Um, Because we do present to male and female students. um, And sometimes people you know, are listening to this and recognizing that they're fitting the red flags and then question they do. So us being able to offer suggestions and and advice to them too of what they can do early on to hopefully stop this cycle. That's amazing. I didn't, I, I'm not sure that I'd ever thought of it in those terms. Like when I think of prevention, I think of, you know, like you were talking about Nicole, the red flags for people to kind of watch out. I, it, Sadly, it had never really occurred to me that there would be the abusers in the audience that early enough on that they yeah. could they could recognize it and actually want to do something about it before it. That's cool. That makes yeah. me happy. And, yeah, I didn't. Even and know. I also, you know, yeah. and I always tell the young people and I call them kids, but the young people too. Like, even if you yourself never ends up in an abusive relationship yourself you are going to someday be the teacher or the doctor or the attorney or the judge or the nurse that is going to be interacting with the victim at some point in your life. And you having this background information is going to be so important to have uh, when you're making decisions about uh, how you're going to handle that situation when it occurs. So, or even, you know, like law enforcement, I'm not, you know, well, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, law enforcement too. And, and also, you know, knowing what to do when you see it happening in yeah. the community. Yeah. A lot of people don't know what to do. Most people turn away, they walk away, you know, they don't want to get involved. So teaching the young people, like, if you're not comfortable stepping in, call 911. Yeah. Take a video, take pictures, you know, so that when the officers arrive, you can show them evidence. Um, so teaching that piece is really important too. Um, it's, you know, in terms of the prevention and then our second side is working with victims and survivors of abuse. Um, and we still call it prevention because we are helping them find themselves and rebuild themselves after their abusive relationship. Because what we're finding is often when people don't do that, they jump into another abusive relationship. It might not be as abusive, Um, so they find themselves telling themselves, um, well, this person doesn't hit me, even though they're emotionally abusive, you know, so it's okay. So until people really truly do the work, um, with themselves to feel a hundred percent comfortable being alone are most likely to settle and settle in an unhealthy relationship. So working with survivors and victims is the second piece. So having monthly gatherings, holding workshops and retreats. Um, will be another piece of the work that we do. And I'm still calling it prevention because I feel like it's preventing them from re-entering yeah. another abusive relationship or returning to their abuser. Ooh. Yeah. That's heavy work, lady. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. And, you know, I think a lot of times we as victims, um, if we rush too fast, and I see it over and over again, um, people rushing into relationships with another abuser. Yeah. That's almost like that process. It almost sounds like addiction where sometimes, you know, somebody will get off pills and then start drinking, you know, like it's kind of, you really have to do the work with all of it, you know? 
So that makes absolutely. sense. And, and, you know, it's interesting that you brought that up because it's ap- absolutely true that there are neurochemicals released in your brain when you're in the happy honeymoon phase of a relationship. Mm-hmm. And then you go through the cycle and you're sad and you're depressed and you're broken up. And then your abuser comes back around with the promises and the, the change and everything's great again. And those neurochemicals are released again and it's happy and you feel good. So it is very similar to a drug. It is very similar to a drug, the way yeah. those um, neurochemicals are released. And it's, it's been proven, you know, with psychiatry and, and studies that that happens and, and that love addiction um, is truly a thing. And I do think a lot of domestic violence victims fall into that cycle, but they have no idea that a lot of it is, is chemical, like you just said, 100%. I didn't think of that either. Well, you know... I did. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I want to get back to that eventually. Like I want to talk more into detail with the enough initiative and kind of like what got you there. Like, sure. But let's start from the beginning. So tell me like about growing up, where did you grow up and how was all that like? Okay. So I grew up in Lapeer, Michigan, which is a very rural country town, dirt roads, farms. Yeah. Uh, my best friends were boys. I was 100% a tomboy, had horses and a goat and dogs and, <laughs> di- you know, dirt bikes and, yeah. you know, worked on a cow farm. And that sounds like fun growing yeah. up. <laughs> yeah, it, does. it was very, it was, it was fun. Yeah. And very, it was very isolated. Um, my mom is and was, or was at that time a teacher in an urban school setting in Pontiac, Michigan. And my dad was a test driver um, for a Ford Motor Company. And my parents were very different than most of the parents, though, where I grew up. So my parents were very progressive. Um, Good. And I was <laughs> up nice. this uh, country, white town. Um, and I had parents who were teaching me about equality and we were listening to beatnik poetry and Bob Dylan and Bob Marley and UB40. And, um, I was always taught not to judge people by their race or their, their uh, sexuality. Good. And I was growing up in a community that that's all that, you know, that was the norm. Yeah. It was, you know, so I w- I've o- it was always kind of me questioning and pushing. And um, in, I think it was 11th grade, my biology teacher told us that AIDS was caused by uh, Africans who couldn't tell themselves from the monkeys. Oh, God. Oh. Monkeys. And so, of course, <sighs> I went and told my parents immediately who filed a complaint with the school district. Good. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, um, that's good for them. And then I got retaliation from the teacher because Uh, the teacher got in trouble. And um, How much you want to bet when that teacher got in uh, trouble, the principal or whoever was like, we're going to do this just to placate them. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You You know, know, it's, it's, it's really hard to say. And, you know, looking back, I can even tell you my political science teacher who was, you know, a really good teacher and kept telling me, I needed to go into law. Once he heard where I was going to college, he actually pulled me out of class when he heard I was going to Eastern Michigan and Ipsy and said to me, um, you know, that that's, there's a lot of black people that go to school there. And I was like, dumbfounded. Like, yeah, like why? Like I, because of my parents and because of my family and the way I was raised, like it didn't even, it wasn't making sense to me. Like, why are you saying this to me? Um, but for him, I, I, apparently, if it was his child going, he would have been concerned enough. And he was concerned enough to say that to me. Um, so the way I was brought up, it was very different than the community I was raised in, if that kind of kind of makes sense. It, yeah. it has always clashed a little bit. That's actually quite a bit. <laughs> right. But like that doesn't happen very. I mean, like you just said, they're all just. In the small town, we're all white, thinking small town things, but your parents were like, listen, there's bigger stuff out there. What do you think made your parents progressive? Yeah. 
Um, you know, I can't, I can say on my mom's side, like my, my grandmother was always a progressive person, not so much my grandfather, but I think they just, um, were kind of, I don't want to say like hippies, but kind of in that they were in the beatnik. Yeah. Um, they moved out to California for a while and they were, they were, my dad was studying photography. And so they just, I think were around people who were much more open-minded and, um, and took on, thankfully for me, um, took that on and, and always taught my sister and I to be that way. Uh, and also to always stand up for ourselves and our beliefs, um, too. So, um, you know, that's, something that they've always taught us and, and that I've always done. Yeah. That's me so hate. I know. <laughs> like, way to go, your parents, uh, man. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, like, and looking back, like, it made me weird. You know what I mean? Like, in that community, right. it made me weird and different um, because no one else's parents were, you know, were reading Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac <laughs> to their kids right. out loud. Like, you know what I'm saying? And, and listening to Bob Dylan and uh, Eagle Mouse. And it's, so it did definitely make me kind of weird. Um, That's the good kind of weird. Yeah. Let's throw well, that out there. Yeah. I'm 100% okay with that. Yeah. Um, but it, I'm, I'm so thankful to have had that, you know, upbringing, even though I was raised in that community that was so... Uh, like we didn't recognize Martin Luther King Day, but we recognized people got two weeks off for hunting. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. So Ew. it was. Um, luckily, that's changed now. Yes. Um, but are you? Much- are you still still close to that town now? No. You live far, <laughs> no. far away. I mean, I have. You know, I do have some friends that still live there near there um and i still stay in touch with a lot of people who are from there but have moved to other places and i will say um like through my experiences with domestic violence and the courts and even with my nonprofit, i get lots of hometown support oh good and oh I'm that's free very thankful for that um yeah that, that seems like something Small towns are like, no, domestic violence isn't real. We're not even going to look at it. Like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Turn away. Yeah. I hope a, yeah. I hope a lot of things that we associate with small towns is slowly going away. Because, I, I mean, we were like, am I I've, being a small town asshole? Like, oh. No, it's not. It's not that. I just, I just being hope. kind of judgy. I hope. You know, I hope some of that is going going away because there's nothing like I have nothing against small towns. I have nothing against small town people other than racism, sexism. Yes, (laughs) I mean, you know, but I have all the isms and the phobics. But I don't care if that's in a small town or in a big city. I I don't like any of it. So I guess that's right. Right. (laughs) Um, so, and I've, I've, I've often asked my parents, like, so why did you choose (laughs) like what was, but they wanted a farm Uh and they land and a garden. It it probably went back to some of that hippie stuff. Yeah. So that's kind of how we, we live off the land. man. (laughs) (laughs) And we did have a huge garden for many years and we ended up, I think often with, we'd have like anywhere between eight and 11 dogs because my Ooh, dad was that's my dream always taking okay, the animals really. in and luckily we had a, a barn and, yeah. and an acre fenced in and we could do that but we would literally have between eight and 12 dogs at all times oh we had our gosh. we had random cats we would just take them in um well you have was, to have barn cats i mean come on <laughs> right <laughs> Right. In in 12 dogs. I mean, right. who doesn't? What, I mean, what could go wrong? <laughs> so, you know, and amazingly enough, like they didn't fight. They all got along as crazy because I've done foster fostering for dogs. Uh-huh. And the that I fostered, my dog fought with horribly. But if thinking we had 12 dogs and they didn't fight at all, it's looking back like crazy to me. Maybe, you know, crazy. being out in the open, they got that pack mentality. That- yeah. 
<laughs> so kind of being the weirdo in your school in town, did you mm-hmm. like, did you have friends? I mean, were I like, was that a thing? Was school, did school basically out? just like suck a lot or? You know, it's interesting because I would say up until 10th grade, I was like really nerdy, I would say. Yeah. And I don't know if something about the way I look changed or I changed, but suddenly in 10th grade, I became embraced by the popular crowd. Um, So I always had multiple groups of friends. So I had like my popular friends, I had my nerdy friends, I had my burnout friends, and I crossed. Yeah, that's the way to be. (laughs) Yeah, and I was friends with, um, you know, people from, from pretty much every crowd, Um, And again, I think that goes back to my parents and, you know, not being judgmental and being open and, you know, accepting people for who they are and appreciating people's, um, you know, different whatever it is about them that I, that I liked or enjoyed um, and not being judgmental and only hanging out with a certain crowd or type of person. So I've, I always, um, and I've tried to instill that in my kids too, Mm -hmm. um, as much as possible. And I feel like I've done a pretty good job with that, um, with them too, seeing like their, their wide range of friend groups. That's pretty. Yeah. I like you. You're a good human. I know. I'm like, oh, oh, I like this. Thank you. you (laughs) Um, But yeah, it was weird going from like being like the super nerd to like suddenly like, oh my God, like the popular kids are. Oh, they're not being mean to me now. Like what's like what's going on? Uh, did I? I probably wouldn't have trusted it for a while. No, I'd, I'd have, have been, been like, like, "Are you gonna like carry me with <laughs> pig blood here?" Or right? You know? <laughs> right. Because I will question everything right. to death. <laughs> oh. Um. So, did you have any woman influencers in your life while you were growing up? Like someone that really directed your way. Um, I would say that my mom and my grandmother were very strong female role models um, for me. My grandmother basically ran our family's funeral homes um, that um, they own. My grandfather uh, suffered a traumatic brain injury. Um, Probably, I would say it had to be in the early 70s because I was born in 72 and I don't ever, I don't recall him ever being normal. Um, but no one ever explained to me like what happened to him or why he was oh no like oh, always no. different and questioning you and you know he would call me an asshole and he would like <laughs> ask me like grill me like how many watts are in a kilowatt and speak Spanish but no one ever like really I think knew to sit down and explain to me what had happened to him um, that he had fallen and had a like a, a severe brain injury and he actually had to have holes drilled. Oh my gosh. Um, to a- Poor guy. So at that point, my grandma basically took over um, the funeral homes and she ran them. And she also took care of him full time while she ran those businesses. Um, <laughs> so she was a very strong uh, female role model. And then my mom too. My mom's always been very outspoken. She's always been very much stand up for yourself. She was a teacher in Pontiac. Um, she was an amazing teacher. She still has students contact her now, you know, <laughs> to tell her how she affected their life. So the best kind of teachers. Yeah. <laughs> and she was a strict teacher. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> she was a nice, nice teacher. <laughs> you know, she was strict, but you know, she, she definitely was a very um, a strong female role model, both of them, um, for me to, of women who were independent, always taught me, have your own money, always have your own bank account, even when you're married, um, you know, always be, you know, be ready to be independent. Amazing. I mean, it's good advice, (laughs) but also it's no wonder that you started your own nonprofit. Right. I mean, when you have those two influences, that's pretty, like, they gave you some some good foundation to get going with that. So mm-hmm. that's amazing. Um, so did you date a lot in high school? 
I had a I had a steady boyfriend, um, like my junior and senior year. You know, we were going to get married and have three kids. Yeah, of yeah. course. And <laughs> two dogs and a cat. Are you sure, sure you didn't want 12 dogs, I was about though, to say that. Because. <laughs> Maybe a goat. <laughs> I always, I still want goats. I still, I still. I mean, I, I want a goat. goat. I don't. And I live in a city. Like, I, I had a goat growing up. His name was Daryl. He was. Amazing. I was about to ask <laughs> so, what his name was. What's your goat's name? Daryl. Oh, I yes. like that. He thought he was a dog. He didn't even know how to sit and shake. He was so. Oh cute. my gosh! Now I really want one. I know. Damn it! Yes. <laughs> so, when did when did that relationship fizzle out? So we went to different schools for college. And, um, yeah. you know, probably halfway through freshman year, you know, we both realized that it was not going to, to work out. Um, so we broke up, I think it was about, about halfway through freshman year. And, um, I dated people a little bit here and there my freshman year, um, in college, I actually dated like so. Actually, part of the reason we broke up was because I caught the attention of one of the star basketball players who was a senior. Oh, Nicole. At Eastern. Uh, yeah, <laughs> until I found out that he still had a girlfriend. Oh. Oh. And cut. Yeah. No thanks. Right, right. <laughs> so they kind of ended that situation. Hi, Miles. <laughs> um, so from there, um, oh hi! Sorry, my son. Hi, kids. Oh, it's all right. Hi. <laughs> 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 um. So from there, I actually started dating my ex-husband in my sophomore year okay. in college. So very young, like just turning nineteen. Wow. So yeah, and so, uh, how long did you um? date him before you married him we actually we dated steadily for like all throughout college and then after college so that was like you know four years right um through college and then off and on for the next five years before we got married he went um and played some canadian football after college so uh, you know, was going to different states and traveling um, for a few years after college. Mm-hmm. Um, I stayed home. I would go visit. Um, but then we didn't get married until uh, after my first son was born. And uh, he was born in 1999. So we had been together uh, almost 10, 10 years off and on. You know, there right. were breaks um, and we would get back together. But before we got married. Um. So, you know, you talked about the red flags and all and missing all that stuff. When you look back, like, what do you think? Like, when can you remember kind of like kind of passing on by those red flags? You know, looking back now and having the knowledge that I have now, it was pretty early in terms of, I would say, the isolating from my friends, not liking my friends, not wanting me to hang out with my friends, uh, the put downs, whether they were trying to be funny at first and now I'm just joking, I'm just kidding. Um, Or like later with apologies after the put downs, they were definitely there things were never good enough. Everything was my fault, but there were always apologies afterwards and things would be good. Um, so clearly like looking back, they were there. Um, but I had no idea what they were because to me, like jealousy was love. He just cared about me. He just wanted to be with me. He wanted to spend time with me. He worried about me. Like I, I was able to justify those things because I knew no better at that point in time. Is, you know, sometimes I wonder, is there like an abuser handbook because they right. seem to just yes. follow the same place. They're just all you know? of the same place. And I bet he's he's like a classic narcissist mm-hmm. and <laughs> um, is like starts with emotional abuse before moving on to physical. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's Absolutely. in the handbook. I mean, I, I swear it's in the handbook. It, you know, but we've joked um, some other survivors and I about writing a book called the abuser's handbook because oh it's almost, <laughs> it 
it's 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 crazy. They say the same things, right. the same words. Like never, you'll never find someone to love you again. You'll never find another. You'll never be in another relationship again. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's quote by quote <laughs> the words that they use, the way they try to break you down is constantly so like it's constant mm-hmm. like breaking down. Like even when nothing's really going on, they're just like on you being the Mm-hmm. Yeah. Listen, that if you ever write that book, that needs to be like a book in schools. <laughs> right. Yeah, we've 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 talked we I mean it would be, you know, and it would probably be very therapeutic because it yeah. you know would be fun to write, right? Because it's somewhat it's sarcasm, but it's such reality because they do say and do so many of the same things. That uh Weird and gross. So, you know, I, you know, as so my background, I am a clinical social worker. Uh huh. I I personally feel like there needs to be a separate diagnosis in the DSM for abusive personality disorder. Yeah. Uh, Well, it is very similar to narcissistic personality disorder. There are definitely some traits that are different, and not all narcissists become physically abusive. Mm hmm. Um, I hope that someday some research will be done and maybe someone will look at adding a new, uh, diagnosis into the DSM, like, cause it is so similar, but it, but it is different. Right. Mm-hmm. Think that it would be all that hard to add. I mean, like new stuff. Gets added. Not like mm-hmm. everyone knows what brains are doing. The pushback that we'd probably get is with the judicial system. Shocking. Right. Because <laughs> if someone is abusive, right, and goes to court and has that diagnosis, you know. Be like, oh, no, he just likes to abuse people. It says so right here. Like, you should have <laughs> right. known better. Thanks. <laughs> right. Or they, you know, it could go that way. Or it could be like, I mean, it could go either way. But you're right. People could say, well, you know, he can't help himself because he has this diagnosis. Right. Fucking ew is what that is. Or it could be, you know, no, you need a stronger sentence because you do have this. Right. But I do think that the legal system and political political viewpoints could impact the diagnosis ever being added. Well, I mean, maybe it can be, you know, because there's, you know, the numbers and there's like 0.9 and blah blah blah. like maybe yeah, there like could, a, be, it could be like a subtype yeah, or something yeah, right, yeah maybe it could be something like that to where it's Those things are so confusing <laughs> so confusing uh, right. um so how, how long were you with him before you made the decision to leave and how many times did you try to leave so Oh, goodness. Um, a lot of times. Yeah. Honestly, <laughs> a lot of it's times. It's scary. <laughs> especially even before we got married, like we'd break up yeah. and then we get back, break up and then we get back together. Um, after the marriage, there were so many times that I thought about it, but then talked to myself out of it because it would be easier. It's easier for the kids. It's better to just stay. It's like the kids are young. I'm just, just hold, hang in there until the youngest gets into kindergarten, then it'll be easier. Like there were always um, things that I would tell myself, reasons to stay, mm-hmm. that it would be easier to tell the physical abuse got so severe um, in 2009 that I began to fear for my life. And so the by then the physical abuse had um, gotten much much worse. And, you know, there was a point where he physically attacked me pretty brutally and held a gun to my head. Um, and he loaded it and unloaded it and told me all the reasons he was going to kill me. And, um, the next morning he made me apologize to him for almost killing me. God. Uh, Yeah. And and so at that point that there was a shift and there was, you know, there were no more apologies. It was almost to enjoy the power he had over me mm-hmm. through the, in the fear. And that's when um, I started to realize like, if I didn't leave, he was going to kill me or I may, I also was thinking, okay, how do I get to the gun before him next time? Oof. And, you know, 
but four months still went by and every day he pretty much told me if you tell anyone, if you uh, call the police, if you ask for help, I will hunt you down. I will kill you. Um, but after four months of that and me really realizing that um, you're going to die if you stay, I told my mom and I called a shelter for, to help, for help with the safety plan and uh, made my plan and my mom opened up a checking account for me and um, I started making, when he was at work, copies of important documents like birth certificates, um, our marriage certificate, social security cards, financial things. When he wasn't home, I would take things to work and make copies. Um, I would, I kind of tucked some clothes away and take them to my mom's after work right away so that we would have enough clothes to make it for at least a few weeks once we left. Uh, and then I filed for a personal protection order. And as soon as the personal protection order was authorized, uh, we left and uh, I went to my sister's in Canada. And I was so thankful that I had had that safety plan and had those documents and had the time to get those things together before another um, severe episode happened and we had to leave without them. Um, I, was, I was very thankful that I had that information because I feel like it was so helpful um, with me being able to, to break free. So, um, that's brilliant, by the way, I'm not sure that like, I would think yeah. was that, that safety plan or what, so doing the, getting all the documents and stuff, is that something that you knew to do just because you're brilliant or was it, you know, the shelter that helped you with so, that idea? Yeah. Between the shelter and like research that I started doing while I was at work. Yeah. Um, you know, I kind of pulled things together and then like just, and now, um, and I don't know if you guys have seen, I did create and I posted on the Enough Initiative uh, safety planning guide for people during COVID, which really could apply for any time. Um, God, that's but, such a good idea. I didn't see that, I but I will look it for either. it and I will share it. I will share it as well. Okay. Because, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, because it, it's, it's, it's a terrifying time yeah. and you um, are stuck you, in your you house with an abuser right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And first. the idea of leaving has to be scary, scarier even a little bit because, mm -hmm. you know, there's just the, the outside world is scary right now too, you know? So. Yeah. I'm really, <sighs> I really get people who are in that situation um, right now. I can't, I, I can totally feel for what they're going through yeah. and, and, and hope that, you know, once things change, they're able to break free. So I have a two part question for you. Um, mm -hmm. Well, that's kind of the same question for two groups of people. What would you tell? Cause you know, um, I think there are so many people that judge um, people for staying in a relationship that is abusive. Um, so the first part of the question is, is what would you tell those people that don't understand what it's like to be in that situation and why you don't leave? But then also what would you tell, like, what would be your advice to people in that current situation when they're kind of in that back and forth of, do I stay? Do I leave? Does that make sense? The way I worded mm -hmm. that stuff. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, I can kind of, one day I, I was, I was talking to, um, a friend of mine and he said to me, what gave you the courage or the strength, I think was the word that he used. What gave I you like the strength? But he kind of said it in a way that was like, it made me feel like somehow he was saying I was weak because I didn't leave before that part. And I don't like, no, no, I don't like that. If I really, yeah. But I said, you know, if, to, if I'm honest with you, it took so much strength and courage to stay and live with your abuse, with my abuser and go to get up and take care of my kids and go to work every day and, you know, put on this happy face at work and get my job done and then go back home to that horrible environment, but still love on my kids and take care of my kids like that took a lot of courage yeah. and strength. You know, I was, I made it clear to him to not belittle 
what victims go through because it is so tremendously painful, but they still have to get up every day and face the world just like everybody else. Um, so I wouldn't say it was what the strength I would say for me, it was more fear and the fear that I was going to die if I didn't leave mm-hmm. that find me wake up and decide to leave. And that's why I really pushed so hard for lethality assessments for police officers. Um, and we are finally going to be um, establishing them in our county in Arianne, who I mentioned earlier um, as my badass lady yeah. um, part in making it happen in our county. And what that entails is when police respond to domestic violence calls, they do a lethality questionnaire with every victim that asks them um, 13 questions to assess how likely they are to be killed by their partners. Gosh. Not only will that help the police officer in making decisions, but then it also goes to the prosecutor and judge. But as a, as a fourth component, it really helps the victim see yeah. how at risk they are for being killed by their partner if they don't leave. Um, and like for me, I think that was really the ultimate thing that pushed me to finally go. So I think if more victims were able to really see like in black and white um, on paper, how high their risk is, because people don't tell you, you know, what the different risk factors are. Strangulation is number one. If your partner's ever strangled, you choked you, that's the number one sign that you're going to be killed by them in the future. Um, But other things like um, children in common, weapons in the home, um, if your partner's not working, history of substance use, um, alcohol, like all those things can increase your risk for lethality. So, um, and this is a long answer to your question. No, this, uh, it's, I, I don't um, know that's any of these very things. Important, so though. it's really important. So, you know, I would say um, in terms of, it wasn't really courage or, or strength. It was more the fear that finally woke me up to leave. But what would I tell a victim who's contemplating it? Um I would tell them that if he's hit you once, it is going to happen again. It may not be for a week, a month, or a year, but it will happen again. You know, statistics data shows us that the recidivism rate is extremely high for domestic violence, even with so-called treatment programs, which um, really none have been shown to have effectiveness, truly, with uh, perpetrators of domestic violence. I don't know if you guys are aware of those statistics, but... Um, the, the basically based, uh, perpetrators are often assigned to these domestic violence classes, mm-hmm. anger management, classes, right? Um, and the success rate is dismal, yeah, dismal. I assume it's um, like one so percent, yeah. And so I just tell, you know, tell them it it is going to happen again. And, you know, for the kids, you know, letting them know that if you stay and you have kids, the chance of your child growing up to be either an abuser or a victim is extremely high. It it increases their chances by 77%. that That gives me chills. Either or. um, Because if that's what they're witnessing, that's what they're knowing is is normal. What did, did your boys know? Or did you try to keep them away from all of that? You know, I, I try to keep them away, but kids are kids are much right. more. My kid's and- probably listening right now, and she's going to ask later, and I'll be like, what the hell are yeah. you doing? They're smarter than they get credit for, too. Yeah, and I think a lot of times as parents, we convince ourselves almost that, oh, they're not aware of things that they truly are aware of. Um, and for my oldest son you know, even at, at like as a seven-year-old saying to me, like, why are you still with dad? He's so mean to you. He treats me. Um, so they were definitely aware. Um, they, they did go, once we did leave, they did go to group counseling and individual counseling, but, you know, you still always have those worries about, you know, even though I left, did I leave soon enough? Yeah. I'm not as a model, you know, and in terms of like a healthy relationship model, I haven't dated anyone seriously since my ex-husband. So they really haven't had a healthy relationship model to see since then. So, you know, of course I talk to them all the time, probably drive them nuts because <laughs> it's a worker in me. Um, 
would ask them questions and, and try to talk to them about different things. But at other times, like, because we were going through court and things were so crazy, it just became our norm. So we just, it was our life to have police officers knocking on our door, checking on us to have like, um, they knew that Max, and I know we haven't really gotten to that part of the interview right. yet, but he was trying to hire people to kill me from prison. And they were aware of all the safety precautions that they had to take. And, but that just became like our norm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, all that trauma and, and trauma is a big thing right now yeah. in social work and in therapy and schools, but you know, trauma affects kids so greatly in the number one, um, you know, child abuse and domestic violence yeah. are the number uh, one trauma experiences for kids growing up. So, mm. so, and it truly does change brain chemistry. Yeah. Grow up seeing that. But it sounds like they immediately knew, even when your oldest was seven years old, that it wasn't right. If he mm-hmm. said things to you like, why, why are you staying here if dad is so mean to you? Mm-hmm. So that's good. I mean, that has to be better than, you know, I don't know what else... He, a child would say, but you know, that has to be like a better sign that your, your kid knew right from wrong, even if your husband was an asshole. Right. True. Well, and, and, you know, I know you worry about it not being soon enough, but I like, I look at that and I think that they got a really great example of a strong woman that, that what and it's not I'm not being the condescending strong, but genuinely somebody that had the oomph to get out of there and do what she needed to do. So Yes. Mm-hmm. And stay gone. Stay gone and not be intimidated by all the bullshit that he is pulling from prison even. And then, you know, starting this uh Nonprofit yeah. where you teach other people how to be strong and how to try to prevent it. So that I mean, mm-hmm. you're like such a good role model for them. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. When you, I try. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they have to see that. I see them in the Enough Initiative shirts. Me too. They're representing their mom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know they probably, I know they at times have to get tired of it, but uh, for the most part, they roll with the punches. They stayed for the whole fundraiser that we did two weekends ago, <laughs> like the entire thing. That's awesome. I was shocked. <laughs> so, okay, you leave, you go to Canada to your sisters, like, and you don't have to go into like detail of everything, but kind of give us a rundown of like what has happened since then. You kind of mentioned a little bit, but. Yeah. So, um, even though I basically followed the instructions that the police told me and that, that the domestic violence shelters told me, um, I went through two and a half years of stalking. Um, during that two and a half years, I called the police, um, 13 times at least. That Um, seems really low. In two years, I just assumed that you were calling every day. I I could have called them three times that much, but because of the poor response that I got from them, them. I will be honest and say that um, I had officers ask me what I did um, to to, basically to stalk me. And then I had officers. Yeah, like tell me that it was a he sh- he says she said situation. Um, and finally, I was blasted and had an officer who her who actually listened and looked deeper. And f- that was when we got the first arrest. Um, and that was like literally probably close to two years then when that first arrest happened of him stalking, threatening mm-hmm. me, me, and that officer. Thankfully, um, his name is Paul Corey. Um, he was the first one to really believe me and take the situation seriously. And he made that first domestic violence arrest. 
And then um, after that, there was an aggravated stalking charge that was pled down to stalking because I don't know if you guys know this, but often, almost always, domestic violence charges are pled down. Um, And they're pled down to misdemeanors. And um, it's not until your third domestic violence charge that it becomes a felony. But even then... Your third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh can still be pled down to a second. So you could have literally 15 domestic violence offenses and they could all be still misdemeanors because they've all been pled down. And we see that time and time again in our court system happening. Um, So people are not being held accountable and they're right back out. Um, And that's another reason why victims often don't follow through with uh, charges and reporting because they know nothing is going to happen and their abuser is going to be right back on the street right. harassing and them again. Right. And that's that's Reality. the same thing with like rape as well mm-hmm. because, you know. Absolutely. But, but he has yeah, a but swimming a career, you know, right. like who cares? Like that'll ruin his yeah. college career. Like, ugh. How do we change very, that? Yeah, exactly. Go die. Very die. similar. I just don't. And um, so this, the next aggravated stalking was to the point, and this is where Arianne, who was not even my prosecutor, got involved again. Um, he was threatening to kill me. Um, he was on the run for five days. And Arianne, as a prosecutor in Washtenaw County, not even the county where he had fled arrest, um, authorized um, first a SWAT team to go looking for him, and then the U.S. Marshals. And wow. the U.S. Marshals oh, wow. ended up arresting Good. him. Good for her. On the fifth day. <laughs> and so, yeah, so they arrested him, and he was um, charged with aggravated stalking and was going to be released again. On. What's the difference a, between a aggravated stalking and regular stalking? Like, so aggravate with aggravated stalking, there is an intention to harm. So threats of harm, uh, use of a weapon, um, where regular stalking is someone might just be watching you, following you. Through a window so and whatever. It's depressing that kind they don't differentiate the two. It's it's depressing to me that they don't consider like mental health harm. You know, like regular mm-hmm. stalking like that's not doing any harm to somebody i mean i know there's obviously right. a difference but right dear lord yeah. <sighs> we have we have a, a huge way to go in terms of sentencing guidelines with all like with rape with domestic violence with stalking all of those things like our sentencing guidelines are a joke yes you know, you know the animal abuse has stronger sentencing guidelines than domestic violence stalking in most states I think Angie um, told us that. Oh yeah, she Angie did tell us that, and then we got mad. Mm-hmm. Then yeah. too, we said, "Listen, we we yeah. also want punishment I for mean, animal abusers." Right, but, but come on, absolutely. I mean, come the fuck <laughs> on. It's someone trying to physically kill another human person. Like, do something yeah, about yeah. it. And, and so you know, and even after that conviction, you know, the judge was going to let him right back out, <laughs> and come on. And essentially begged him not to do that. And was it a man and, judge? Yes, yes okay, it was. Cool. Yep. Cool. And um, I essentially luck. I had. I was very lucky that it was a full courtroom that day, and that um, I was able to be strong enough at that point and angry enough at that point to say to the judge, "If something or when something happens to me and he kills me, are you prepared to raise my kids? Because this it is going to happen." And this is why these are all the things that have led up to this. And um, the judge kind of, um, after some hemming and hawing, pulled the deal off the table and did sentence him to 15 months up to five years in prison. And it was um, during that first (laughs) in jail before his transfer that I got the the phone call about the first attempt to hire um, to kill me from Washtenaw County Jail. Holy... Just from jail, like he tried to hire someone in jail. Yeah. The first attempt was from jail, and it was um, someone who was from our area, and he offered him fifty thousand dollars to essentially chloroform me. Oh my you god! Know, me 
unconscious and then um, shoot me up with a lethal dose of heroin. Holy fucking shit. The guy passed a polygraph. He only came forward. This is the scariest part. He was considering it and he was willing to do it until he started thinking that it was a setup to get him new charges. And that's the only reason he came forward. Oh, God. He came forward, um, passed the polygraph, but he wanted a deal to testify. And our prosecutors at the time thought his crimes, like he had like some attempted robbery uh, charges and some other things. They felt like his crimes were too great to give him any deal. So nothing happened and there were never any charges. Well, because, you know... Um, Property trying to hire him. Property means more than a woman's life, yeah. you know. Yeah, Ooh. and then the next, next two, well, actually, the next four people that came forward were all people who had drug charges. Uh, um, so he tried to hire people five times, five times to get out and kill you. So the second phone call that I got um, was right before he was getting transferred. So, of course, you know, in our state, and I don't know if your state is the same as ours, but basically the minute you're up for a parole, you're getting out. Like, it, you just are. Oh, so, I don't know. We're in Missouri. They might, like, probably give you $500 and, like, a pat on the back, too. <laughs> I'm not sure. We um, So once, you know, we hit that 15 months point, he was transferred. And um, that's when the first two inmates came forward with letters um, saying that he was not only offering people money to kill me, but also saying that as soon as he got out, he was going to kill me himself. And then um, when the jail called over to the reentry center or prison, sorry, where he had been transferred to, they pulled him into isolation and two inmates came forward there at the reentry center saying that he had offered them because they were going to get out first, offered them thousand dollars to kill me and so they set to wire these guys get the um, information for new charges and there was miscommunication between the prison and the state police and they transferred him back to prison before the state police had a chance to wire the inmates so again no new charges cool. and then a detective at Jackson or in Jackson who investigated the other two people that had come forward at Jackson and his entire investigation um, was summed up in one paragraph. Uh, He never interviewed the inmates. He simply interviewed my ex-husband whose body language told him that he was telling the truth. Oh my God. And he had no intention of harming me. So he, there were no new charges. Oh, okay. Then why is he in jail? I have all these police reports and, and I was able to talk to that detective. I said, do you realize that this has happened before? And that's when I learned that there's no database in our state for the state police for all of this information to be so that they know that this has happened multiple times. So when it happened again for the final time in Luce County in 2017 is when I got that phone call. Another um, gentleman had come forward saying that he at this point was offering him $5,000 to kill me. He came forward out of good conscience and um, he was soon to be released and had a daughter and he uh, didn't want a deal. He didn't want anything. He was willing to wear the wire. And unfortunately, the Upper Peninsula, Michigan, they did not ask for help from anyone with the um, recording device. And there was too much background noise. During, oh, oh my God. God. So the prosecutor in Lewis County refused to move forward with new charges, even if the inmate was willing to testify, even if he was willing to take a polygraph test, because he did not believe that a jury would trust another inmate's testimony. And that's when I started asking the questions, well, what about these other one, two, three, five inmates, you know, that are all reinforcing the same thing. They're all in different facilities. They're all saying the same thing. He still, he wouldn't even speak to me on the phone. He kept making his poor assistant talk to me. And so that's when I started looking Mm. for legal. And people told me the only way to get help was to get the attorney general to take my case. 
And so that's when I started um, telling my story publicly on social media, on Facebook. And I was lucky, very lucky to have connections in the Detroit Free Press. Picked up my story. They believed me. Um, you know, a lot of people hear my story and they don't believe it. They're like, how could this happen so many times? How could the police make this many mistakes? This is bullshit. There's no way this guy tried to hire this many people and never got caught. So once the free press, um, Kristen Jordan, Seamus, who's amazing, like dug in, did the research, I showed her every police report, every document. She was like, holy shit, like this is 100% real. Your story has to be told. And she told my story front page in the Detroit Free Press um, in June of 2018. And uh, from there, it kind of went viral. And that's when Chris Como's people contacted me and I was very lucky to have them involved um, and be on their episode of Inside Evil with Chris Como and have them in the courtroom with me through most of the trial once the attorney general finally had enough pressure put on them that they picked up my case. But, you know, you know, we did get a, we did get a new trial, but it was never for attempt to hire. He's never been convicted attempt to hire. Oh my God. What they did, um, the attorney general was basically able to go back and prosecute him for crimes he had not previously been prosecuted for, which were extortion and witness intimidation. Um, So he's never had to face attempt to hire charges. That's all for this episode. So please join us next week for the rest of our episode with Nicole Beverly. Bye.